A man by the name of Eric Weyenheimer is blind. Yet on May 25th, 2001, he reached the peak of Mount Everest. He suffers from a degenerative eye disease. He lost his sight when he was 13 years old. But that didn't stop him from climbing this great mountain, a mountain where 90% of the climbers never make it to the top, and at least 280 people have died in the last few years trying to climb it. Eric succeeded, and it was in a large measure because he listened well. He listened well. He listened to the little bell that was tied to the back of the climber in front of him so he would know which direction to go. He listened well to the voice of his teammates who would shout out to him, death fall two feet to your right, so he would know which direction not to go. He listened to the sound of his own pick jabbing in the ice so he would know whether the ice was safe to cross. If not for his teammates and if not for his careful listening, Eric would not have made it to the summit of that perilous journey. You see, it's not in what you can see, rather it is in who is with you and how well you listen. This morning we're going to take a little trek through God's word and get a feel for what it means to be led by the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit, to listen to his voice, to experience his presence. What does it mean to be led by God's Spirit? What does it mean to listen to his voice and experience his presence, his guidance, in this trek through life? What does it mean to be a spirit-led church as Grace Baptist Church? What does it look like? What does it really take? What are the dangers? What are the pitfalls? And so basically this morning, we're going to gather at the base camp, as it were, for an orientation meeting, an orientation and preparation for the journey that God has for us individually, for the journeys that God has for us as Grace Baptist Church. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what the journey is and some about what the journey is not. And then over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at specific examples of what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. So turn over to the book of Acts just for a moment. Acts chapter 2. Be looking at uh, verse 42. No matter what I do, ever one of those mornings, your Bible won't open to the page you want it to. Happens to all of us. Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 42. You'll recognize, you know this, in the second chapter of the book of Acts, it begins with Pentecost. 120 disciples were gathered in the upper room. There was a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house, the tongues of fire, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. A crowd gathered and Peter preached the gospel, and 3,000 souls were saved. And then verse 22 tells us what the early church, this first church, was devoted to. These have been called the marks of a healthy church or the, 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 the marks of an effective church, but it's what our body life together is to be about. And so verse 42 of Acts chapter 2 says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and sharing with them all as anyone might have need. 
day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. The central figure in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. It's not the apostles, it's not Peter, it's not Paul, it's not Barnabas, it's the Holy Spirit. It could rightfully be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is about what the Holy Spirit does, how he empowers, how he uh, leads, how he fills us. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to take these marks of an effective church, these Acts of the Holy Spirit, how he worked in and through the early church, how they followed the leading of the Holy Spirit, and see what it means for us to be led by the Holy Spirit. For those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, Paul said in Romans 8.14. So we're going to see what it means to be led by the Spirit as believers were in the book of Acts in our devotion, our devotion to the apostles' teaching which is the word of God, to fellowship, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to worship and praise, to serving, to evangelism. We're going to see what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit in these essential aspects of our church life together. For example, what is spirit-filled and what is spirit-led worship? What is spirit-led prayer where the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God and to walk by the Spirit in our witness, in our testimony? So this morning I want us to picture ourselves at the base camp, as it were, of Mount Everest. We're at the base camp, we're in a cabin. It's time for the orientation that prepares us for the climb, for the journey. You look around the cabin, you see all kinds of supplies, you see, you see equipment laying around or stacked in a certain way. Some of it looks very familiar to you, some of it looks kind of strange to you. You might not be sure how you use a particular piece of equipment. You might even feel a little anxious about the journey ahead. You might even wonder why you're here. <laughs> Anybody feel that way this morning? Why am I here? Well, so with that in mind, I want us to turn to the book of Exodus, where we started out this morning, Exodus chapter 33, looking at uh, verse 2, the 33rd chapter of the book of Exodus again, but back at the second verse. Moses has been commissioned by God to lead the people who have been brought out of slavery in Egypt into the land of promise. But it's going to be a dangerous journey for Moses and the people. There's many obstacles. There are many enemies who will try to stop them. And on top of all that, on account of the sin of the people, whom God said were stiff-necked and obstinate, and who had sinned against God with their idolatry, idolatry, who had broken all ten commandments while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the commandments, the Lord has changed the conditions for their journey. He significantly changed the conditions about how he was going to lead them into the promised land. Before they begin their trek, there's a significant change in the conditions of the journey. So look at verse 2 of Exodus chapter 33. Before they begin the journey, the Lord tells them how it's going to go. And at first glance, it sounds pretty good. Verse 2, God says, I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Parasite, 
the Hivite and the Jebusite. And we say, cool, an angel is going to go before, ahead of time, drive out those enemies. Those are the kinds of things we'd want to hear before we would start a dangerous journey, but get a load of verse 3. He says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you along the way. Time out. Wait a minute. <laughs> Those aren't the kinds of things we want to hear before we start this dangerous journey. You're at the foot of the base camp at Mount Sinai, and you're going to start the journey through the wilderness. It's like the guide who is the expert, who knows it all, who can do it all. You fully trust him. He stands up and says, well, actually, I'm not going with you. I'm going to send this other dude way out in front of you. He will clear the way. But if I go with you, I'd have to kill you. That's a literal interpretation of that. God could not dwell or live in the midst of a hard-hearted people without taking them out. So at this point, Moses begins to freak out more than just a little. He has to lead these people whom God can't even stand to be around. Yet Moses recognizes a crucial thing here. It's crucial for him. It's crucial for us today. We pick it up at verse 12, verse 12, Exodus chapter 33. Then Moses said to the people, or said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I might find favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people. Moses pleads with God, let me know your ways that I might know you. The word translated ways is literally road or path. Let me know your road. Let me know your path. Show me the road. Show me the right path on this journey that we're on the right path. It's the same prayer that the psalmist had prayed. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in your level path. Show me the right way. Show me the right path. Put me on the right path and on the right path in roads. Why? It wasn't just so Moses would be on the right path so he'd get to the right destination. It's much deeper than that. Moses is saying, I want to be on the same path that you are on, Lord, so that I might experience you, that I might know you. How can I know your ways? How can I know you if I'm not on the same path you are on so that I can come to know you? In verse 14, God answers Moses' plea in an incredible way. The Lord said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. The word translated rest means to put at rest. We might say, I'll put your mind at ease. I'll relieve this burden from you. Moses, you can rest assured in this. My presence will go with you. Moses, I will be with you on the path. I will be with you each step that you take. Now I want to see want you to see that little three-letter word you, Y-O-U. Of course, in English, we suffer from a lot of things with our English language. One of them is when you say you, is that singular or plural? And I've used this before because when we lived in Texas, y'all was singular. 
Y'all singular. Y'all, all y'all is plural. <laughs> all y'all is, is plural. This is you singular. Moses, I am going with you alone. I'm not going with all y'all. I'm just going with you, Moses. God wasn't going to be with the stiff-necked, obstinate, sinful people. He had withdrawn already his immediate presence from the camp. So Moses had to go outside the camp and set up a tent of meeting outside the camp where when he entered the tent and the glory of the Lord descended, Moses spoke to God face to face as one man speaks to another in the tent. And while Moses was in the tent of meeting in the presence of God, the people stood at the entrance of their own tents and they worshiped God from afar. I can think of no more tragic statement at all in scripture than having to worship God from a distance. But I also know that it goes on with countless lives and with millions of people all over the world today, people who try to worship God from the entrance of their own tent, refusing or unable to come into the immediate presence of God. While in this tent of meeting with the Lord, God says to Moses, even though I will not go up with all the people, Moses, I will go with you. My presence will be with you. And this is the most crucial thing we need to know and understand at the base camp level of our Christian life, our lives and our lives together as a church. If the Lord doesn't go with us, if he doesn't lead us, if he doesn't guide us, we're doomed to failure or we're doomed to mediocrity at the best. Ever since Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit filled the disciples of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has empowering, been empowering, enabling, purging, leading generations of sinners to, the fa the fa to face the reality of God, filling believers, gifting them, and enabling them to do whatever he's called them to do. But in all the work of the Holy Spirit that is multifaceted, and one of the thickest books I've got in my, my library is by Gordon Fee, and it's about this thick. And it's just on the work of the Holy Spirit in the epistles of Paul. <laughs> and it's the thickest book I've got. It's massive. And he points out, and this is true, in all the work of the Holy Spirit that's multifaceted and multi-sided his ministry, one word sums up the Holy Spirit's ministry. There's one basic activity of the Holy Spirit that is the central focal element. His activity is summed up in the word presence. The presence of God. My presence will go with you, says the Lord. As believers in Jesus Christ, God is with us. He is in us. He indwells us in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes known to us the risen, reigning Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the central element of the Holy Spirit's ministry. The Holy Spirit makes known to us the presence of God. When we pray the prayer of Moses, let me know your ways that I may know you, God answers. He is present with us and in us in the Holy Spirit. He makes Christ real to us. He makes God real to us. He is our guide. He is with us. Now, when we talk about the presence of God in this case, we're not talking about God's theological omnipresence. 
like Psalm 139 speaks of God being everywhere at the same time and him being aware, his omniscience of all things at, at the same time. Now, omnipresence is an important truth, but what we are saying here assumes God's omnipresence. But when the writers of the Bible speak of the presence of God, they speak of God being present with his people in a way that he is active in their lives. Often this was expressed of God being with them. The Lord was with Joseph in Egypt, and Joseph became a successful man. At the burning bush, when Moses panicked about the thought of returning to Egypt, God said, I will be with you. God repeated the same promise to Joshua, who succeeded Moses in leadership. He said, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. In the New Testament, Matthew takes up this thought in particular of God being present with his people. God was with his people in, in Jesus Christ, blessing them. Then through the gospel message, he says that his name shall be called, what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he records the Savior's promise, I will be with you always. This is the distinctive, constant, basic ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised, and then he sent his Holy Spirit to mediate and make real God's presence with us as our Savior, Lord, and God. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have an advantage that was only afforded to a few people in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God asked people to stay away from him. You ever thought of that? They were to stay away from Mount Sinai. They were to stay away from the Holy of Holies in the temple. As we have seen, God refused to go with that stiff-necked, obstinate people of Israel, and they all died in the wilderness. Only a few representatives of the nation could draw near to God, just a few, like Moses or David or Daniel, the prophets, the high priest once a year, and they did so in fear. But today, thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, all who come through him are invited to come in to God's presence. Remember the words of the writer of Hebrews? Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. On account of the sacrifice of Jesus, God the Father welcomes us into his presence. God the Father welcomes us into his presence like he welcomes the Son of God into his presence. Wow. When you receive Jesus Christ and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, you are just as welcome in the Father's presence as the Son of God is welcome in his presence. How great is that? How plain and simple is that? A.W. Tozer wrote, God desires for us to push into his presence and live our whole lives there. That's what God wants. And not only are we invited to come, we are given the promise of the Holy Spirit who ensures that Jesus Christ is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples of Pentecost, the disciples suddenly knew the brilliant consciousness of the actual presence of the living God. 
They had walked with Jesus. They knew Jesus. They had loved him. But in the coming of the Holy Spirit, there was the sudden illuminating knowledge of God himself being present with them, indwelling them, filling them. The veil was taken away and they felt God. They experienced God. They knew themselves to be in the immediate contact and presence with God. Now this is the beginning point of being led by the Spirit of God. You can't be led by someone who's, who's not around, who's not present. It's not like God is in a control tower somewhere, radioing directions on how to fly this thing, how to live the Christian life, how to do church. Rather, he is actually present with us in the cockpit, as it were, telling us, explaining to us. God is not only up in heaven where he sends down written instructions on how to do church and how to live the Christian life. He is present with us, living in us. He empowers us, enables us, motivates us, assures us in a very direct and personal way. Turn over to the 42nd chapter of Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 16. There's one passage there that, that sums this all up for us. Isaiah chapter 42, the 16th verse. Isaiah begins this chapter by God saying, Behold my servant whom I am uphold. I put my spirit on him. Talking about the spirit of God coming upon his servant, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 16 of this 42nd chapter of Isaiah, the Lord makes a promise to us. It's a promise of God that he makes to us as we walk by his spirit, as we are led by the spirit. This is the base camp level promise that God makes to us as we journey through life, as we walk with Christ. The 16th verse, God said, I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. So at the base camp level of the Christian life, we need to understand two things. The presence of God by way of his Holy Spirit who leads us. And secondly, we need to learn how to listen to his voice. To listen to his voice. We are like blind climbers. It's not what you can see, but faith is what? The evidence of things you cannot see. We walk by faith, not by sight. Many times we think that, that faith is, I'm just going to jump out into the darkness, I'm by myself, and hopefully God's going to come along and grab me and make this thing work out. You know, A lot of people have that view of faith. Rather, faith is who is with you. He's always with us. And how well you listen to him. God says, we're going to take this journey together. I am with you. You can step because you are stepping with me. But you also need to listen to my voice. I would imagine at the base camp level, the guide would want to be very clear of the importance of listening to him. Because on a climb, your life depends upon it. If you listen to the wrong voices or pay attention to the wrong things, it could end up in disaster. 
So it's who or what do you trust? So I want to mention some of the things that are not meant by the leading of the Holy Spirit. We could call these listening to the wrong voices, of not paying attention to what the Holy Spirit says and where he leads. And if we listen to the wrong voices on the perilous journey of life, we are destined for failure. It could end up in in disaster. And so at our orientation at the base camp level of the Christian life, these are things we need to be warned about, things that we need to watch out for, voices, as it were, that will lead us or could lead us on the wrong path and we could end up in the wrong place or we could take a tumble, as it were. And first of all, there's the voice of feelings or intuition. We like to listen to our feelings and intuition, and, uh, but many people believe that their feelings or their intuition are the leadings of the Spirit. But in Scripture, the Spirit did not lead people through such subjective means. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas and Luke were on their missionary journey, they had been led by their own feelings to go up north to Asia or Bithynia, to go up that direction. That's where they wanted to go. And they kept trying to go there, but the book of Acts says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. They tried another direction that made sense to them, and it says the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. In some audible way or some visible way, the Spirit forbade them, and they listened to the Holy Spirit till they were called to Macedonia. Come over and help us. And, and much of the religious confusion today is the result of failing to note this distinction. People appeal to their feelings to justify their beliefs and justify what they do. You hear people say this all the time. Just follow your heart. Follow your heart. What, what is your heart telling you to do? And then they make a decision or they pick a particular direction, pick a path based on what they most want to do deep in their heart as that's the right thing to do. Yet Jeremiah the prophet warned in chapter 17 verse 9 that the unredeemed heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of death. Following the voice of intuition can lead to destruction. But Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, it promises, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. If we have a heart for God, if God is shaping our heart into the image of his son, then more and more our heart's going to be in line with God's. But we still want to follow God's heart. A second erroneous voice is the voice of emotionalism. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotion. I get emotional every time I think of the presence of God, even right now. You know, I always liked it when you're at some big meeting, like a camp meeting or a convention of Christians or something, and the worship leader comes out, sing it like you mean it, like loud. You know, many of you know, if I sing it like I mean it, I can't sing it at all. <laughs> and a lot of us relate with that because of the emotion of being in God's presence, and there's nothing wrong with that. But many people today mistake the leading of the Holy Spirit for getting all worked up, for getting all excited. 
In recent years, we've had such aberrations coming out of the, the tornado, or tornado, yeah, that's it, Tor Toronto blessing or the Pensacola outpouring, where they were saying that holy laughter was the Spirit of God. They even went so far as holy barking is of the Spirit of God. These were attributed to the Holy Spirit. And then there's all those peculiarities on TV that are attributed to the Holy Spirit. And these kind of things have been mistaken for the moving of the Holy Spirit. And we look at these uh, aberrations and related to emotions. And then we want to brace ourselves thinking that, well, maybe the Holy Spirit would make me do something really weird or off or something like that. And then Paul reminded the Corinthians that the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. What does that mean? God is not the author of confusion. If it's out of control or you can't control it, it's not of the spirit of God. Because Paul says all things are to be done decently and in order. And then I shouldn't even have to mention a third voice, but it's so prevalent today. It's worth mentioning and needs to be mentioned. And that is the voice of new truth. The voice of new truth. People think up something. They say it's a revelation of God. I just read the other day, there are 2,500 active cults in America today. You know, we're not talking about them like we used to when, when all the books were written and stuff about how to witness to people and, and those kind of things. And it should go without saying that the leading of the Holy Spirit will never contract the word of God as we have it in, in, in God's word. And some of the last few verses of the Bible should sum it up pretty well. John writes, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. And then related to the voice of new truth, we also have to watch out for the voice that contradicts truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit will never tell you to do something that God forbids in his word. And the Holy Spirit will never tell you not to do something that he commands for you to do in his word. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, who testifies concerning him, and who guides you in all truth. So that brings us very briefly as we finish up, listening to the right voice. We're still at the base camp level, and I hope we're getting at least an idea and awareness of what it means for the Holy Spirit to be our guide, to listen to the right voice, to be able to take God's truth, God's word, and be guided by the Holy Spirit in all truth, rather than listening to the voices of intuition, emotionalism, new truth, or claims that contradict scripture. So what does it come down to? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? So I want to give you a brief, concise definition of what we have seen in God's Word today. It summarizes what we have learned and what we need to know at the base camp level. To be led by the Spirit of God, and I put this in your outline this morning so you'll have it. To be led by the Spirit of God to means to be consciously aware of a being Consciously aware of being in God's presence, listening to his voice, and responding accordingly. To be led by the Spirit means to be consciously aware of being in God's presence. We experience awareness every waking moment of the day. 
When we wake up in the morning, we become aware of our surroundings and the thoughts that we have. As we go through our day, we're aware of literally thousands, maybe millions of things. Uh, an image on television, a barking dog, a person's voice, and an itch on your arm, a desire to drink some water. These are things about which we are aware. Our awareness flirts, flits from one thing to another all, all day long. And I like that movie with the, the dog or squirrel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we're distracted. It gets our, our attention. And pity the poor dogs who didn't listen to the squirrel. <laughs> An arm itches and we scratch it. You see, awareness is not a belief about something, but it is the direct experiencing of something, whether by sight, sound, feel, taste, thought. So what is the awareness of God's presence? It is the experiencing of God's presence. It's the consciousness of God's presence. It's not the belief that God is present. It's not hoping that God is present, but it's the consciousness of God's presence. It's not making God become present. It's becoming aware of the holy presence that is already here now. And when we are aware of God's presence, then we are in a position to hear his voice and to be led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus put it a whole lot simpler than I have in the last half hour or so. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The good shepherd is ever present with his sheep who listen to his voice and respond by following him. Now let me leave you with this. If you were to climb Mount Everest and you were following a guide, you'd depend upon that guide for much more than him being there or even guiding you. You would look to him for encouragement, for comfort in difficult situations. You would rely on him for strength for the journey, knowing that even if you are on the right path, you don't have what it takes to get there on your own. And I thought of these verses when I thought of Romans 8.26 says, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. Jesus put it this way in the 14th chapter of John, if you'd like to turn there. John chapter 14 at verse 16. This is the great promise. 16th verse of chapter 14 of John. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will make myself known to him. I will disclose myself to him. God fulfills to us and in us through his Holy Spirit what Moses prayed for. Let me know your ways, Lord, that I may know you. Shall we pray?
Our Heavenly Father, as we come to what I've called the base camp level of the Christian life this morning, Lord, I pray that as we take this journey together, this journey as Grace Baptist Church and as individuals, as we discover what it means to be led by your Holy Spirit and in the Word of God, through prayer and fellowship, through the breaking of bread together, through our worship, through our evangelism, through our service, Father, I pray that more than anything else, we will become more and more consciously aware of your presence with us as a body and with each one of us as individuals in our time that we spend with you. May we know you. Show us your paths that we may know you as Paul prayed, that I might know you and the power of your resurrection. This is our prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.